Let's pray. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful and kindle in them the fire of your love. And now, Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So I'd like to start by sharing a few words that have become to me in my work as a chaplain more and more and more significant. It's constant. And I, I pray these words with people. I read these words to people. And the more years that I say these words, the more they embed in my heart. He will wipe away every tear from your eyes and death will be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Do you hear those words? That comes at the very end of Scripture, and it speaks of the consummation of all days. The consummation of everything. And at this moment, this is what God says. He will wipe away every tear from your eyes. Death shall be no more. Mourning, crying, and pain, for the former things have passed away. Just right after that, Jesus turns and says, it is finished. Which I find to be an echo of what he said on the cross for himself. And now he's saying it not just for himself, but for the whole of creation. It's finished. It has all been completed. I have done it. It is finished and the former things have passed away. So here we are, almost to Christ the King Sunday. It's next week, and there's always a bunch of end times passages right at this time of year, just before Christ the King, Christ the King, and then just after, at the beginning of Advent, because, of course, Advent looks to the coming of Christ in the cradle, but we start with looking at the coming of Christ in his glory and his return. That's where Advent starts. And so here we are talking about end times. And I think um, traditionally the Anglican church isn't known for being a big end times church, right? I mean, you don't hear a lot of rapture talk or millennial, millennia, tribulation, all that kind of stuff. Like, it just doesn't come up a lot with us. And yet, and yet, make no mistake about it. We are end times people. We are. Have you paid attention as we go through our service every single Sunday? There are four references to the return of Christ every single Sunday. And depending on which, op there's things that you have, the, the Father Paul has options for. And if he chooses one option, we can actually have a fifth. We are end times people. It comes up every day. Soon Father Paul is going to pray and 
fill up and end our prayers for our Eucharistic Thanksgiving prayers by saying, until the day when we meet our Lord face to face. You know, um, the topics of end times are, are difficult. Um, I think if you will look at, at what our prayer book brings up and the things that we talk about, what you'll find is the Anglican Church holds to that which the church universal has said, we have a consensus about this. And beyond that, we just don't go into it much because there's just a lot of debate about it. And it's okay if you want to believe that, but that's not the whole consensus of the church, right? And so what we stick to and what we proclaim is that which all Christians have always agreed upon everywhere. It's amazing how much controversy evaporates when you do that. You know, when I think about how we react to the question of Christ's second coming, his return in glory, I, I feel like, and I know our church is not filled with people who are cradle Anglicans. Huh? Can, can you raise your hand if you're a cradle Anglican? Is there even one? There's one. Our deacon. Two. Two. There we go. That's not many. Three. Okay, three. All right. So three. It's triune, right? Um, it's not a lot. And so you all come from these, this multitude of different backgrounds, and I have no idea what exactly it is that your baggage is about Jesus' return. But I've been in a lot of churches, and, and I've seen it and felt it. I think um, the things that people feel about this are, are not uncommon even to Scripture. So there are people who are really cynical about the idea that Jesus is going to return on a cloud. Right? Just very cynical about it. I remember I read, it was on some 1980s kind of new wave band from England, and the guy on his album cover, this was like when I was 19, he wrote on, on the little album cover, he wrote, you know, if Christ is up there, I picture him being in this cosmic waiting room, just turned bitter after all the years of watching us live. And I think that's, there's a lot of people who really feel that sense. The people who've walked away from the church and it's like, Jesus is returning? Really? Cynicism isn't new. Our um, reading out of Malachi starts off with God addressing the people about a cynical view of him. And God speaks to them and says, your words have been hard against me. Thus or says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? And then God says, you have said, it is, in va it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of keeping his charge or walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts. And now we call the arrogant blessed. We call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape 
So why in the world should we worry about this, God? You're so needy. You put so many demands on our lives. And so there is cynicism right at the heart of the people, and I don't think that many of us are far from that. Maybe, I don't know, maybe some of us in this room. And Malachi has a word to us, and it deals with turning our hearts. Turn your hearts. The book of Malachi goes through, and it talks, if you read the whole book, it's only about, I think, four chapters. This goes right to the end. It's not long, but there's a lot in there that the prophet addresses that's worthy of some cynicism. I'll be honest with you. There were some bad things going on, and people were feeling it. But is, is, is the church any different? There were a lot of bad things going on. But welcome to the old creation, folks. That's why we need Jesus to come back when death will be no more. Because all of that, it's finished. And so Malachi calls the people. He tells that Elijah is coming before the great day of the Lord. And he says to them that Elijah, and this is the operative thing, ready? He will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. And he will turn the hearts of the children to the fathers. Now, I don't think this means fathers as opposed to mothers. And honestly, I don't even think it's really primarily about dads. Because the whole book of Malachi deals with the abuse of power. And so in the midst of that, he calls the powerful and those over whom they have power to stop and turn your hearts. How in the world is anything ever going to change with cynicism? God calls us to turn our hearts to one another. Cynicism feels good, but it brings death. And Jesus is coming, and when he returns, death will be no more. Church of the Redeemer, if you're feeling a little cynical, turn your hearts. Even maybe if there's good reason to feel cynical about things, turn your hearts, because a turned heart is the answer to a skeptical, cynical soul. The other thing that I think that I have seen in, when we talk about end times is I think some of us can kind of feel it's a little embarrassing. Don't you think so? I mean, like people get crazy about this and it's like, oh, Jesus, what's the pastor going to say in the sermon where we've got a passage on end times? And um, if, you, if you feel that way, it's, it's okay, because there are some crazy people who have said crazy things and made this almost silly. But as in Malachi, we read in 2 Thessalonians, there's nothing new under the sun, friends. I love Paul's letter to the Thessalonians, both of them. It's full of end times things. 
And the reason is, Paul has founded this church, persecution came and he had to run out before things were really established in the hearts of that church. And he was really nervous that they might fall away. And so he writes these two letters. And one of the things we find out in 2 Thessalonians is someone's gotten the idea and started spreading the rumors that Jesus already came back and we missed it. And so there's the silliness right from the beginning. And here's what Paul's answer is. I love this. You'll never hear this in an end time sermon. Paul's answer is, therefore, get a job. That's what he says to them, literally. He says, you know, people run around stirring things up. Will you just be quiet and get a job? I, so when I was in northern Kentucky, there was a, a couple in our church who were really, in, I won't tell you what they were really into. They were really into something. And there were times, they were dating, there were times when I just thought, dear Jesus, let them get married and start having kids so they'll have diapers to change. Just so that, like, this thing will go away. I don't think it's that, that the Apostle Paul is so super concerned that we be busy, but he doesn't want us to be busy bodies, right? So he says, get a job, and the essence of the, the, the exhortation, he says it somewhere else, is get a job so that you'll have something to share with other people, right? The promise of the return of Christ doesn't call us to be silly and to do dumb things. It causes us, or calls us, to get a job so that we can live our lives in a way so that we can bless other people. Or, I mean, there are all kinds, like if you're retired, don't feel bad, you don't have to go get a job. Find something to do that is work of God. Go out and bless someone. You know, it's funny, um, actually, this is actually great for not just end times things. Think about how many church fights would go away if everybody would just hunker down and love people in the church. Like, is it really worth being a busybody and messing with all of that? Is the thing, your little soapbox issue, is it so important that it's worth all that? The testimony of the Holy Spirit is go get a job. Go change a diaper. Volunteer for something in the church. Go on the youth retreat. There's all kinds of things that you can do to turn off the busybody and turn busyness into love. That's what the end times calls us to do. It calls us to live like God wants us to live. About a hundred years ago, there was a British philosopher. He was actually, he was a very broad-minded. He did all kinds of things. He was fairly incredible. Um, but don't take his advice on religion. His name was Bertrand Russell. And about a hundred years ago, this, it was in the 1920s, he gave a series of lectures and he put them in a book and called it, Why I Am Not a Christian. And so um, one of the stories that came out of this, he said he was at a church once and the minister was preaching about the return of Christ and he exhorted the people, you must live like Christ is coming tomorrow. And then later that week, Bertrand was out going for a walk through the neighborhood and he passed the minister's house and there he was in the garden planting a tree. And he, he laughed about it. Well, if Jesus is coming, why are you planting a tree? I think that's exactly what you should be doing. 
right? Get busy, preferably a fruit tree so you can share the apples with your neighbors. The promise of Christ's return doesn't inspire us to anything but to live like Christ would have us live. That's what Jesus tells us. He's coming like a thief in in the night, so be ready. That means love each other. Go plant a tree. That's a beautiful thing to do. God loves trees. God loved Bertrand, too. I wish he would have known that. I think the antidote to uh, feeling embarrassed about the return of Christ is to just love. Go out and get a job and love more. And then I think our last passage speaks to something kind of, rem- um, kind of tangentially and... Um, but I, I feel it sometimes. And that is, sometimes the return of Christ feels really remote. Doesn't it? I'll be honest with you. Life gets hard. Or life gets great. And it feels really remote. Like, do I need a new creation? I'm doing okay in this one. And you see that. The, the Jesus and his disciples are walking up the mountain, um, and they look out across the valley, and there's the temple, and they are just in awe of the temple. Look at that. Just look at it. And I think this brings to my mind Jesus' parable of the soils, right? And he talks about all the things, but the one that always gets me most is the, the, the soil with weeds on it. Because the weeds, Jesus tells us, are the cares and concerns of this life. Whether it be your cares for how wonderful this is or cares about how this is tearing you down, those things choke out the word of God. And in our case, I think it makes the need, the longing for a new creation and a returned king, just very remote. And what Jesus says is, first of all, every stone will be unturned, overturned. Not one stone upon another will stand in the temple. And I think, by extension, we can put that over to the rest of things. The things we value and love, like our cars, our houses, our careers, our reputation, like whatever it would be that we love, that we prefer over the promise of what is coming, not one stone on top of another. But likewise, the things that choke the life out of you, and I know they do, and if they're not yet, Just give it some time. It's coming. That's what life does sometimes, isn't it? Not always, but it comes to us all. And the good news is not one stone upon another of that will stand. Not one. Because Jesus is coming back. And when he does, death will be no more 
neither mourning nor crying nor pain anymore. On the day he says, it is finished. Jesus says, he tells the disciples that persecution is coming. And he uses this phrase, he says, settle in your minds not to, to, um, uh, to meditate on how you're going to answer these things before. I'll give you the words. But as I was reading through this in preparation for this message, what resonated my, in my mind for what we are to do is the words, settle it in your mind. Settle it in your mind. Settle it in your mind that all of the glorious things that we cling to are chaff and they are fading. And all the horrors that we dread are chaff and they are fading. But that which is imperishable is on its way. I wonder if that is the new song that our psalm prayer today is about. Sing a new song. Let the old songs go, Church of the Redeemer. Let them go. Today is the day for a new song. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.